All right, well, if you want a title for this morning's message, it's Living a Life Less Ordinary. I'd be grateful, please, if you'd turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. The last couple of weeks we've been in the book of 1 Corinthians. But I want us to now return to another one of Paul's letters, to the Colossians. And we're going to give ourselves to just two verses, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It reads as follows. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that all scripture is God-breathed, and so there isn't a word or a sentence out of place that is unimportant and irrelevant. Everything is relevant. It's come from your lips. It's been exhaled from your mouth. And so, Lord, would you speak to us this morning as we learn what it is to be in the world, to win the world, as we learn then what it is to live a life less ordinary. Would you encounter us with your word? Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts? And Father, by your grace, would we be changed as we see you for who we are and what you've called us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking a lot about local mission. And so we've started our series, In It to Win It. And I've just been so encouraged by the way you've taken to it and the different conversations and and real excitement that is happening as a result of the way God's meeting you through and in these messages. We started two weeks ago with a message breaking out of the ghetto and we just looked at how important it is that we be in the world to win the world. We looked at how important it is that we don't build a local church which is just inward and insular and so thrilled that we're a family that we don't even realize anybody else exists outside the family, but instead we build a church that is in the world to win the world. We actually go and we seek to communicate the gospel to people beyond these four walls. Last week then we looked at the importance of contextualization, the importance of what it is to translate the gospel in word and deed to people from different backgrounds and different cultures and different diversities that God brings into our lives. And we looked then at how important it is that we don't just have a one-size-fits-all event, but we really are all things to all men so that by all means we may win some. And that's our strategy as a local church. Well, as we continue to put that local mission jigsaw together, The one simple point I want to make this morning is this. If we are going to be effective at winning people, then the way we live and the words we use really do matter. If we are going to be effective at being in the world to win the world, if we're going to be effective at actually in our lives winning people to Jesus Christ, then the way we live and the words we use really do matter. And that's what these two verses are all about. You see, this letter to the Colossians was written by Paul. And yet the history of the letter starts many years earlier to him actually writing this letter. You see, while Paul was in Ephesus for three years planting the church there, there was a guy called Epaphras who actually visited Ephesus and came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He got saved, but he was from Colossae. And so he tells off back home, having come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and goes into Colossae and starts telling people about Jesus. Well, before long, a church was born, and that is the church here that we now entitle this message to, Colossians. 
For many years, this church did really well. It thrived. Many people came to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And yet more recently, and more recent to this letter, a very dangerous and false teaching has come into the church. Minimally, it's coming through one person. It's most likely to have come in through a number of people. And Epaphras is writing to Paul and communicating to Paul that he's really concerned about this. And he's asking for counsel and help to know how to lead his church well for the glory of God. Well, this letter is the response to that. And so the first two chapters, we have the Apostle Paul communicating to the church in in Colossae about the important truth that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the preeminent king over all creation and that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the preeminent king over all human leaders and all cosmic powers. That's what was at stake. That's what it was being said. The false teaching was hitting against those different things. And so Paul writes to them to let them know, guys, what you are receiving from these individuals is a joke. Jesus Christ is the true Lord of all. He is the preeminent king over all cosmic powers, over all rulers, and indeed over all creation. In chapters 3 and 4 then, he spends time communicating to them how they are to live in light of that how they're to live in light of the glory of Jesus Christ, how they are to live in the light of the preeminence of the kingship of Jesus Christ. And in this text then, these final two verses nearly towards the end of the whole chapter, he wants to talk to them about their behavior with outsiders. You see, the Apostle Paul, as we know, is passionate about mission, isn't he? He loves mission. Once upon a time, he was a guy who persecuted Christians. But having come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, he now now wants to be on mission. He is a unique and wonderful evangelist in the way he lives his life. But he wants to encourage the churches likewise. He wants to make it clear to them that I don't operate this way because I'm an apostle. I operate this way because I'm a Christian. And so we all need to be people who are in the world to win the world. And we all need to be people who are brandishing the gospel and to take it out to our communities and cities. It's no surprise then towards the end of this chapter that he communicates to us about local mission. But he doesn't encourage them in the whole act of being in the world to win the world. He assumes that. And he doesn't encourage them to be contextual. He doesn't say to them, you know, be all things to all men so that by all means you may win some. He assumes that. Instead, he wants to talk to them about the way they live. See, the Apostle Paul knows full well that the way we live, the words we use and the actions we live, either encourage people to be attracted towards the gospel or repelled from it. He knows full well that the way we live our lives either bring people close to seeing a personal work of Jesus Christ, seeing the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives, or people in the world see it and think, I don't want that. If that's what being transformed by the gospel is, I'm not too into that. And so in these two verses, knowing that, he communicates to them how they can be effective at winning people to Jesus. How they can live their lives. How they can live their lives in their words and in the actions in a way that it builds a platform for truth to go forward. In a way that people see the gospel in its transforming effect and like it and find the gospel attractive through the way they're living. And so he writes these two verses to them. Let's read it again within that context. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. 
Well, this morning, I believe God wants to burn those things into our hearts too. See, 2,000 years on, this principle is still true. Our lives and our words either make the gospel attractive to people or they repel people away from the very words we use. The transforming effect of the gospel seen in our lives is either something that is magnetic or it repels people away from it. And so I think as we examine these two verses then, we ourselves want to sit under Paul as the chief trainer and teacher to us in mission and understand then what are these four things that I need to adopt into my life so that by God's grace people may see Jesus in my life. So as I communicate to them. You see, it's not enough to be in the world to win the world, eh? That alone isn't enough. It isn't even enough to contextualize. It isn't even enough to go stand in a club and say, I'm contextualizing for Jesus and stand there. That's just weird. You know, we have to actually do something with it. Our lives and our words really do start to matter. And Paul then instructs us four clear things of how we can be effective in our lives and words so that people may see the transforming effect of the gospel. So four things. And it's dead easy to see. It's not complicated this morning. There's two things that he communicates about our lives and there's two things that he communicates about our words. Number one then. Read verse 5 again. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. Number one then. If we want to be effective at winning people to Jesus, then number one, our lives should be conducted wisely. Now, I'm aware when you first come to that verse and come to that saying, it can be a little bit tricky to know, what does he mean? I mean, great. Cut up myself wisely. Okay. What? You know, it's hard to know really what that, what that means when we come to it very quickly. And that's why it's always important when we're studying Scripture that we understand the context. And the context is that this is within two whole chapters of the Apostle Paul communicating to these people how they are to live in a manner worthy of the calling that they've received. He spends two chapters then communicating to them about who they are. He's saying, you know what, you used to be an unbeliever. But they're your old ways. They've got to go. Your new ways now need to revolve around something different. They need to revolve around Jesus Christ. And so your old ways, you've got to put them off. So lying and malice and deceit and all that stuff, you've got to put that off. And instead, you've got to put on Jesus, humility and grace and kindness. He communicates that to them at length, what it means to actually change and start to reflect who Jesus Christ is in our lives. And he also takes time within those chapters talking to us about relationships. He says, okay, then guys, listen, this is the way your marriages need to look then as you go into the world. This is the way your work relationships need to look as you go into the world. And this is the way your parent and child relationship needs to look as you go into the world because you're different now. You're a a member of the household of God. You've become a Christian. The Holy Spirit lives in your life. You said that you are taking Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He is now your King. So live it out. That's the context of the last two chapters. So what does it mean to conduct yourself wisely? It simply means that. It means to authentically live a lifestyle, to authentically live in such a way that by God's grace, people outside the church will see a real and transforming effect of the gospel in our lives. That as they encounter us, and we're talking to our neighbors or the folks at university or work or wherever it is, they will see that there is something different about you. And I can't put my finger on it, but there's something different. There's something different about you to the 
my other friends. According to the Apostle Paul, this is absolutely vital with outsiders. It is absolutely vital that we conduct ourselves and operate in a lifestyle where people will see genuinely and authentically the life-changing and transforming effect of Jesus Christ in our lives. F.F. Bruce, I was studying him this week, and in his commentary on Colossians, he says this. He says, It remains true that the reputation of the gospel is bound up with the behavior of those who claim to have experienced its saving power. That's pretty full on, eh? It remains true that the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of the personal work of Jesus Christ, is uniquely bound up with the way we live our lives. He then continues, People who do not read the Bible for themselves or listen to the preaching of the Word of God Look at, the, look at the lives of those who do. Listen. And then form their judgment accordingly. Is it vital in the way we behave? Oh, it's vital. Because there are people in the world that are never going to come through these doors. They're never going to hear the preached word. They're not that interested in, in listening to a podcast by Mark Driscoll. They've never heard of him. They're not that into it. They're never going to come in. They're never going to read the Bible with you. But they're going to watch you. They're going to look at your life. They're going to look at who you are and they're going to look at what you say and they are going to decide off that whether they believe the transforming effect of the gospel is worth having or not. Wow. Is it important then the way we live? Oh, yeah. It's, it's vital. Because in the same way Jesus Christ incarnated God, we have now been called by Jesus to incarnate the gospel, to incarnate the transforming effect of the gospel in our lives and to live it out then within our communities. It's absolutely vital then that we walk with wise conduct. And that is why I think as Christians we have to do all we can to fight against two very common temptations to Christianity. See, as I thought about it this week, I thought, you know, we all can so easily succumb to two temptations that tempt us away from walking like that, to walking wisely in the world. One temptation is this, the temptation to blend. You know that one? The temptation to be so in the world to win the world that we look just like the world. There's really no difference. And as people encounter you, you think, you know what? You talk the same as I do. Your values are the same as mine. Your family's just exactly the same as mine. Your work ethic is the same as mine. What you do with your life is the same as mine. What you do with your money is the same as mine. What's that about being a Christian? There's just no difference. We've blended so much that we don't even look like Jesus anymore. We just look just like them. Sometimes all in the name of being in it to win it. Well, we ain't winning anybody to anything doing that. And yet I think it is a temptation, isn't it? And I know it in my life. Sometimes it's a temptation because of the fear of man. It's not that we want to look just like them, but we're so wetting ourselves about the thought of being different that we decide to look just like them. So we're nervous about what are they going to think. And so instead of thinking, you know what, what are they going to think? We need to win them to Jesus Christ because outside of the gospel they're going to hell. We stop with, well, I don't want to say it because what will people think? We're more bothered about ourselves than loving Jesus and loving them. I think also another reason why we're tempted to do that sometimes is because we like sin. Sometimes it's good. You know, I think sometimes when you, particularly when you're teaching teens, you want to be able to say to them, you know, by God's grace, that, you know, all the things you see in the world, they're not very good. Don't do them. 
But the truth is quite a few of them are very good and they are a lot of fun. You know, it doesn't work like that. But that doesn't mean we should do it. That doesn't mean we should just entertain what everybody else in the world does. We have to be different. We're called to be different. We are called by God to be in the world, but not of the world. Jerry Bridges says it this way, just a provoking quote. He says, have you ever thought about the fact that the way you fulfill your duties at work or the way you perform your professional services can make the teaching about God attractive? Why isn't the gospel more attractive to unbelievers today? Listen, isn't one primary reason the fact that in the everyday affairs of life, we Christians are no different from the general mass of unbelievers? I think he's right. I think we can have the temptation to blend. And then eventually the moment comes and we can get the opportunity to share the gospel, but really they're looking at saying, you're no different from me. What's, what's the fuss? I hear your language. I hear the way you live. It's just the same as me. The other temptation, I think, is the temptation to pretend. And that's the other side of the coin. There's a temptation to blend, but there's also a temptation to pretend. And I get that too. See, it's this temptation when we bottom out who we are, that we're called to live for Jesus, and that we're called to live a life in a manner worthy of the call. The temptation then is to be like performing seals when we go out into the world. And we pretend, we are pretending that we really are Captain Perfect, that I am a sinless one. And so I used to sin, oh yes, I used to do that, but not anymore. No, Jesus Christ has paid for my sins and now I'm a new man in Christ. We go through challenges and difficulties and we go through the same difficulties as people do in the world. Have you noticed that? Okay, that's what I think of health and wealth. Um, It looks just like the world to me. We go through the same challenges, we go through the same sicknesses, the same difficulties. That's deliberate by God. But there can be a challenge when we go through those things to remember the book of James and to think that I have to consider my trials pure joy. So we go into work and we say, yes, it's really difficult at the moment when Nan's dying, but God is good. God is good. I'm joyful about it. What? That's a fruitcake. That's an absolute yahoo. There's just certain things in our lives that don't even make sense. That's just weird. And yet we can feel the temptation to pretend. And I think on the whole... The world looks on at that incredibly unfavorably. It's just rubbish. And I think on the whole, that is the world's assessment of Christianity. That it's fake. See, for people that don't know us too well, I think they just lock on to their lives and just can't relate. And think, listen, your life must be so perfect. You must be such a different personality than me that I could never do what you do. I could never live in a way that you live, man. This just wouldn't work for me. They can't relate. You seem to go through trials, but you do it with so much incredible joy. You never seem to be down about anything. You never make any mistakes. Your marriage is just like unbelievable. Do you ever have any problems in your marriage? Oh, you don't have any problems in your marriage. They just can't relate. It just seems so strange for them. But I think people that are in the world that actually know us a bit better and we try and pretend in front of them, they just look on and they say, you know what Christianity is? It's a bunch of fakes. Because at bottom line, you're just like me. You're not perfect, and yet you claim to be. You go through the same trials that I do, and yet you claim to be considering the pure joy all the time. You go through the same difficulties in your marriages, the same difficulty in your families, but you never tell me about them, but you always counsel me and mine. Do you see how it happens? And then unbelievers look on and say, you know what? Christianity is hypocritical. It is self-righteous. 
and they pretend to be a people that they are not. There is a temptation to blend. There's a temptation to pretend. And the remedy for that is this. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. The remedy is conducting our lives in a way that is authentic and which genuinely reveals to those outside the church the transforming effect of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. See, according to my Bible, that doesn't mean that we're perfect. That's why Paul says, you know what, even as a Christian, even having seen Jesus Christ, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do, and oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will, who will deliver me from this body? You remember that bit? He's a Christian when he's saying that bit. I don't think he's going into the world and just pretending he's perfect. He's going into the world letting people know, listen, I blow it just like you, but man, I'm living for something different and I'm amazed by the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. He's living a life that is authentic. So this walking in wisdom does not mean perfection, but I submit to you what it does mean is difference. It means very big difference. So our children go through sickness, sometimes even serious sickness. Does that mean we go like Skippy into work and say, oh, it's great, it's pure joy? Um, no, that's weird. We go into work and we say, you know what? Yeah, my child's really sick at the moment. In fact, Josh, yeah, when he was seven, he went through a heart operation. So you know what? Yeah, he's having a heart operation. How are you doing with that? But you know what? It's pretty difficult because he's my son and I love him. But I know God's good and I know his hand is on my life and his. That's real and yet very different. We go through job situations and we lose our job and all, all around us people are freaking out. They're really struggling. They are panicking about what are we going to do in this economy. And we sit in the office desk next to them and we say, you know what, I can understand your temptation because I feel it as well. And man, it is going all over the shop and I don't know what we're going to do. I don't know what Julia Gillard's going to do. I don't know how we're going to be able to manage. But you know what, I do understand that behind it all lies a very kind and gracious God that his son died in my place. And in him I have confidence. That's real. But that's different. It means that when we go through situations in our life and we're sinned against, like we are and like does happen in our lives, we refuse to react just like everybody else does. And even when people in the office gathering around us say, that was really out of order the way they said that to you. I can't believe it. How could they possibly say a thing? We have a choice to either entertain it and be just like them or say, you know what, man alive, that does frustrate me. And I find it so darn difficult that they talk to me like that. But I don't want to respond in just the way they do. I want to be different because Jesus Christ has changed my life. That's authentic. That's different. And even when we blow it, even when we make mistakes as Christians, we do believe in the doctrine of sin, right? Well, let it function then. And so it functions in the world as well. So there's times when you'll be talking to unbelievers and you screw up, you bodge it. There's times when I do too. You say something, you just think, oh, that's not quite right, is it? Or you, or you overstep the mark and you think, that's not good. Does that mean we pretend that it never happened and we just try and pretend to be these perfect people? No, I, I think we go back to that unbeliever on some occasion and say, hey, listen, when I said that to you, I'm really sorry about that. Would you forgive me for that? Whoa, it's a bit different. Yeah, but that's real. That's authentic. You're admitting to sin but it's real and bringing a gospel opportunity to them because you're helping them see that you're living for something different and you're living in a desire to please God and you haven't in the way you behave for them. Does that make sense? So it's authentic 
real gospel conduct. And that's what Paul is on about here. Conduct yourselves widely towards outsiders. Then continues in the same verse. Look again. He says, making the best use of the time. And that's point two. Our lives should be making the best use of the time. You know, what Paul hits at here is arguably one of our greatest hindrances and is the curse of busyness. And it is a curse that I think we all struggle with, do we not? It's been great to hear the different things that have gone on in life group this week. But I know in many of my conversations with folk, people are saying, I really want to do this. I, I'm just so excited about this, but I don't think I have the time. I'm just so busy. Well, Paul's going to address that for us, so don't shoot the messenger. He says it right here all by himself. And God is wants to communicate to us about this whole issue of the tyranny of busyness. See, I've been a pastor 11 years now. I started when I was only about 17, for those of you trying to work out all I am. Uh, but, you know, it, it, <laughs> I didn't. I was 24. I'm now 35. I'll be 36 on the 27th of November. Put that in your notes. Um, but listen... Here's a couple of things I've learned in the last 11 years when it comes to this tyranny of busyness, something that we all have. Here's some things that I've learned. Number one, business is far wider than season and generation. It just is. See, I used to do teens ministry when I first started out being a pastor, and I loved it. I had a lot of fun. But one of the interesting things when you talk to teens is they would say, you know, I'm just so busy. And you're like, How? How, 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 we're doing what? Well, I've just got so much homework. Well, how long does it take you at night? Oh, probably 30, 35 minutes. I mean, it's a long time. And then I've got to do, you know, stuff and Facebook and Twitter. I mean, I've got to have a social life, Dave. It's really... So they had in their mind that they are just so busy. And then they go to university and you talk to them at university and they say, man, alive, Dave, I am so busy. I, was so, I wasn't busy then, but now, I am so, now I know what it is really like to do hard work and I have so much to get done through university. It's unbelievable. I'm just so busy. And then they get a girlfriend and they start hanging out with a girlfriend and then they get married and they say, man, alive, I have to lay my life down for her? And she says, I have to be his helper. And you're like, what are you doing? We are just so busy now. We're so busy in in this season of our life. So I do want to be in it to win it, but I was just so busy adjusting to marriage. And and then they have a baby and they say, now I'm so, so busy. I mean, I had no idea how much time I had before, but now I have just so much busyness on the cards trying to look after all these children. I couldn't possibly have time for anything else. And then the children get bigger and they become teenagers and parents have to start talking to teenagers at strange times of night and you know to try and communicate to them and love them and then we get older and older and older to the point where we're talking to like my grandparents who are about 90 and you say grandma i'm coming to england to see you oh that'll be lovely david but we're very busy how are you busy you're retired you don't do anything your life has gone all day doing nothing how can you be busy here's the thing busyness does not relate to to season and generation. Business relates into the way we live our lives. And what I've discovered in the last 11 years of ministry is this. No matter what season or what generation, we always make time for things that are important to us. We always do. We always squeeze the time in for things that we think this is really important. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to us here is simply this. Mission is important. See, folks, if we really believe 
that the people in Sydney are separated from God and running headlong to an eternal punishment away from God, if we don't consider that on the important scale, then I don't know what is. And so we can view our calendar, view our lives, I'm just so busy. And you say, well, what with? You say, well, church, it's just so hectic. Okay, well, so we have a life group. That's kind of on a Wednesday night, like 8 till 10. What else is church? Well, I don't know, but there's a lot going on. Well, no, there's not. Look at your calendar. There's not a lot going on. There's always time for things that are important to us. And what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here then is help us see that the important level of mission must rise up in our eyes. People outside of Jesus Christ are lost. People outside of Jesus Christ are running away from God headlong. And the reality is that you are dying and so are they. We always think we've got so much time. But you never know when that time finishes. And the very person that you think, oh, I really need to talk to them about the gospel. I really need to be more into it with them. As if we've got all the time in the world. Maybe they're going to die this week. So we better get on it for Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying here. Guys, in the way you live your lives and the way you perceive mission, the way you think about mission, then do this. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of time. You haven't got long. You're dying. So are they. So make the best use of time. Don't say, I'm too busy. Everybody says that. How could we be too busy for people that have just sat on the Titanic and now heading long into the distance to eternal destruction? We would do all we could to say, get off the boat! We wouldn't say, well, thing is, I just need time on Facebook. What? Cancel Facebook! Get out there! That's what Paul's saying. Make the best use of time. You know, one of the things that's helped me in that, that may help you, may not, but one of the things that's helped me just think about my time, so we're not talking about something that's in the Bible here, we're just talking about something that's been a personal practice of my life, is on my calendar, on whatever it is on the computer, just that's why I have a PA, because she understands what these terms are, calendars on the computer, that I have three different colours. Green is for church, blue is for home, red is for in it to win it. And I've had that for a number of years, and it helps me. So if I don't see any green on there, I'm a little bit concerned because I'm not quite sure how I'm passionate about the church if I don't see any green. If I don't see any blue on there, I'm a little bit concerned for my marriage and my family because, you know, does it mean I'm not spending any time with them? Do I not consider family nights and date nights important? But if I don't see any red on there, I'm also really disappointed because if I'm saying that I'm a guy who is in the world to win the world and I'm all things to all men and yet you look at my calendar and you say, Dave, you haven't done anything this month, then how in it to win it am I? It's up to you how it works for you and how whatever works practically if you consider to make time. But I want to encourage you, make time for this. Find time. We are called by God to make disciples of all nations. So consider your time and ensure that church and home and in it to win it are all categories that we think of as we go about the mission that we've been called to by God. He's been sent to us and now he sends us for the glory of God. So, our lives should be making the best use of time. In verse 6 then, the Apostle Paul starts talking to us about our speech. And so there's two things as closing that I want to say about that. Paul Tripp, in his book War of Words, a book I highly recommend, says this to us about speech. He says, Talk seems so normal, so ordinary, so unimportant, so harmless, yet there are a few things we do that are more important. Words are powerful, important and significant. 
It was meant to be that way. When we speak, it must be with a realisation that Paul has given our words significance. He's ordained them to be important. Words were significant at creation and at the fall. They are significant in redemption. God has given words value. So we must do all we can to assign to words the importance that Scripture gives them. That's what Paul is doing here. He's assigning to words a significance in our lives. He's assigning to words a significance whereby we don't just go into the world to win the world and just think our words are just words. He said, no, your words aren't just words. Your words and the way you use them are opportunities to either make the gospel attractive or to repel people away from the personal work of Jesus Christ. So there's two things that he talks about. Verse 6, he says, let your speech... Always be gracious. So there's point three. Our speech should always be gracious. Now, I think inherently we all know what gracious speech is. So it's probably what's coming into your head right now. It's speech that is just big-hearted and kind and winsome. It is speech that is communicated in such a way that brings grace to the hearer, that brings strength to them and encouragement to them and builds them up. That's, that is speech that is gracious and kind. And I think we all know that as believers, that that that's the way we should communicate. And according to Paul, if we're going to be effective at being in the world to win the world, then that is the type of speech we should use. Now, I'm okay with that, to be honest. I think that's pretty good. The word that really freaked me out is this little word, fourth in, always. I don't think I like that word. I checked the other commentaries to see if it was any different in the NIV, so we could go with something else. But, But it's there every time. Paul is specifically talking about how our speech should be gracious, not just sometimes when we pick and choose, but always. Man, that's pretty full on. I mean, is it just me, or is that really hard? I mean, am I just the only individual? I mean, this is just, this is, this is just full on for Jesus. This is like, man alive, can, we, can, I, can I check the Greek again? This is just so difficult. But our speech, according to the Apostle Paul, therefore according to God as the authentic of this word, our speech needs to be always gracious. And I think that's hard. So you think, it's not hard with people that are gracious to us, right? That's easy. If somebody's winsome to me and gracious to me and kind to me, I just want to give them a big man hug and tell them I love them and talk to them about Jesus. It's great. You know, it's easy because I want to be winsome and, and kind and nice to them back because they're being nice to me. The problem that I have and maybe the problem that you have are when people are like that, when they're unkind, when they're accusative, when they're self-righteous or judgmental, that's when I really struggle to be always gracious to them. Do you share that problem? I get tested in this problem all the time. Driving in Sydney, I get tested in this problem every day. I mean, there are so many individuals here who are king of the road and they just decide that they are going to pull in on you at a moment's notice. And then as you drive past and you give them the stare, they give you the universal sign language that you know all across the world, which means they're not happy. And people drive just so annoyingly. So people clearly don't understand what an indicator is here. I mean, we use them in the UK. I mean, in the olden days, we put our hand out the window, but now we have the little things on the, the little sticky things, and that means that they indicate. But clearly people don't always use them here. So Emma and I were out in the car the other day, and somebody decided that they didn't know what an indicator was. I nearly rammed into the back of them, and so I drove past them. And, and I'm tested with my speech in that moment because I want to shout things. I want to let them know, idiot, that's what I want them to know as I drive past. 
I'm tested in my speech through everyday moments. Another test for me is real estate agents. Not Mike. I like Mike. (laughs) But on the whole, all the other ones, I find very difficult. And when we moved to Australia, we we had an estate agent which... It's hard to describe the sanctification that occurred in my life through this estate agent, but I just found her so difficult. So we tied her up the house because she wanted to look in the house. She came in the house. There's like white gloves on and she's checking the windowsills. And you're like, do you mind? That's my windowsill. But she's checking the windowsill. She looks outside. There's cobwebs outside on the windows. Of course there is. There's spiders out there. You know, everybody knows this. And all the way along, it was just an absolute nightmare. It got to the end of my tether on Australia Day this year. Our whole family was in sleeping in our room because the air conditioner had broke down and the Heimlich's had very kind of lent us an air conditioning unit. So we all huddled in one bedroom um, and I was getting hotter and hotter both externally and internally as I considered what was taking place here because it had taken six weeks for them to get the air conditioning sorted out. All I wanted to do was strap a little note to a brick and shaft it through her window. That's all I wanted to do. Emma was restraining me on so many occasions because I just wanted to let her have it because this is an absolute joke. You don't have to live in the world long to realise that your temptation to not be gracious is going to be on red alert a lot. But if we're going to be in the world to win the world, we've got to guard this. If we're going to be in the world to win the world, then our speech has to be gracious. And even when we're tempted, we've got to fight it. And we've got to back off and use speech which is always gracious. And you know what? Here's the thing that it comes down to. In light of the abounding grace that we have received at Calvary, how dare we not be gracious in response? In light of the Saviour of the world who hung on a cross in my place, having been beaten, and mocked, and spat upon, and now crucified. He doesn't respond ungraciously. He simply says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In light of having received that, how dare my language not be anything but grace? Because I want to win them. Jesus Christ came to earth to win idiots like me. Who can I win for the sake of the gospel through speech? Our language and our speech should always be gracious. And then he continues this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. And that's point four. Our speech should be seasoned with salt. I'm an Englishman, and so I like hot chips. In the UK, we just call them chips, and then we call your chips crisps. It really helps. Um, But here we call them hot chips, and man, I, I just like hot chips. I'm so excited about going to the UK, in part just because it means you can eat chips every day. And I won't have it be said that we're not a healthy nation. Look at me, you know what I'm saying? Just a picture of health. But, we, you know, we keep really thin, basically on a, on a chip every day diet. And so hot chips, I absolutely love hot chips. I love it when you get like a big box of hot chips. But by, by themselves, they're not like amazing. I mean, they're nice, but they can be a bit bland. But you whack a load of bad boy salt on the top, they are tasty, man. So you, you cover it in salt, and when you've eaten the top layer and the salt runs out, you put a bit more on, because it's really good for your salt. It's one in five, something like that. So you, it's very important that you eat lots of salt. And so I love hot chips, and I love putting salt on them, because salt takes something that is quite bland and makes it attractive. It makes it appetizing, so that me, want, I want to eat more of it, because it's tasty. And that's what Paul is saying that our speech should be like. 
our speech should be able to come into situations, some of them even being quite bland, and make them attractive and make them tasty as we bring the transforming effect of the gospel through our speech into the situations that we find in life. Now, in case anybody's worried, this does not mean you have to have a personality transplant. It does not mean that every Christian has to be like Tigger to every party and event that they come to. I mean, that would just be weird and freaky, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that? Oh, here he comes. It's the Christian. Woo-hoo-hoo! That's just weird. That isn't going to work out. That's not what the Apostle Paul is saying here in any shape or form. He's not talking about Christians being the life and soul of every party that they go to. But this is what he is talking about. He's saying that every Christian, no matter what personality type they are, should use the gift of speech in such a way that it makes unbelievers want to taste more of it. And so the more they spend time with unbelievers, the more as they encounter that unbeliever, the more the unbeliever says, you know what, I really like being with you. I really enjoy being with you. And the way you talk and the way you act, I, I really respect you and I admire you. And that's what the Apostle Paul is talking to about us using here, the gift of speech in that way. A speech which by God's grace is encouraging and kind and compassionate. A speech that is honest and gracious and joyful. A speech that is inquisitive and open and humble. So often people think of Christianity as hypocritical and self-righteous. And so often that comes across in speech. But when people engage people that they find, you know what, you guys are open. You're joyful, you don't judge me, but you really want to inquire about me and you care about me and you're compassionate towards me. I really appreciate that. That is what being seasoned with salt is all about. You speak in such a way that as they talk to you, they want to taste more of it. They want to hear more of it. And that is the speech that, according to the Apostle Paul, is paramount if we are going to be effective at being in the world to win the world. Folks, if we're going to be effective in the call of God on our lives, if we are going to be effective at being in it to win it, and if we are going to be effective at translating the gospel through word and deed to people that are different and contextualize and understand the different seasons and different places that people find themselves in, then the way we live and the words we use really do matter. The way we live and the words we use have the ability either to attract people towards the gospel or repel people from it. They either come away thinking, I want what you've got. You're, you're different. You're like me, but you're different. There is a zestiness and a tastiness about your life which I don't see all over the place. Or they just see us as exactly the same, or in some cases worse, and it repels them from what they see. And so I want to encourage you then. Let us as individuals and as a congregation live lives less ordinary. Let us live lives that are conducted wisely and which make the best use of time. Let us live lives that are always gracious and seasoned with salt. And as we do then, by the grace of God, through our lives, with the people we interact with, see the transforming effect of the gospel in us. And by God's grace then, with that erected platform for truth, over which the gospel goes, that by God's grace they may be saved. We have such an important part to play in winning people. That is not just, as you've seen over the last three weeks, wham, bam, and here's the gospel. That's hit and run evangelism. So much of it is behind the scenes, befriending people, loving people, taking them where they're at, and then living differently in front of them, not to judge them, but to come alongside them as a true friend of sinners. That's what living a life less ordinary is all about. And by God's grace, would that be our story?
Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the scandalous opportunity we have in our lives to represent you. Lord, that barely makes sense to me that you would take guys like me, make us your own, and then call us to go and be your ambassadors into the world in which we now live. Lord, I thank you then for your instruction. You don't just call us to the task, but you equip us for the task. You sit us down as a good and chief trainer and begin to explain to us how mission works and how we are to do it. Lord, I'm sorry and we're sorry for times when we just get this all wrong. When we either blend or we pretend. But Lord, would you help us by your grace to live lives that are authentic and are real and are less ordinary. Lord, we want to live for you and please you in our lives. And we do this in the name of Jesus, knowing that by God's grace they may be attracted to the gospel by seeing its transforming effect in our lives. Lord, you do help us do this by your abounding grace. In Jesus' name, amen.